What's the Point is brought to you by 1-800-Flowers. You've heard of 1-800-Flowers. It's the easiest way to make a big impression for a birthday, an anniversary, and of course, Valentine's Day, which is coming up sooner than you think. They deliver the best selection and the highest quality flowers. They do it by mail, and they arrive looking fresh and beautiful. I'm looking at some right now. They are fresh. They are beautiful. But seriously, buy flowers. It's the oldest trick in the book, but that's for a reason. Don't overthink this. Just buy flowers. It's never a bad call. Lock in your order now. Go to 1-800-Flowers.com from your desktop or mobile device. Click on the radio microphone in the upper right corner and enter the code POINT. That's our code, POINT. That's 1-800-Flowers.com and enter POINT. When there's a community telling you that something's wrong, I really think we need to pay attention. And I know that sounds super obvious, but if people are telling you that there's a real problem in their community, I really think that we need to do a better job of listening to them. It's What's the Point from 538. My name is Jody Avergan. This week, the water crisis in Flint, Michigan. As of this taping, Flint residents continue to drink bottled water as the state decides what to do next. A lawsuit has been filed by a number of coalition groups to compel Flint to replace the lead pipes that were corroded after the city switched to taking its water from the polluted Flint River. It was that contaminated Flint River water, unsafe on its own, that degraded the pipes, causing lead poisoning for the residents of Flint. The story is heartbreaking, enraging, baffling, and it is ongoing. There is a public health crisis underway in one of our cities, one that could have been completely avoided. The clues to how it developed and why the problems were ignored leave a data trail, one that my colleague Anna Barry Jester tracked for the website this week. She'll be on to discuss her reporting in a minute. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, it's the significant digit. Can I tell you a number? Okay. The number is 6.6 trillion, which is the number of cubic feet of snow which landed across the eastern seaboard in this last snowstorm. Say it one more time. 6.6 trillion cubic feet of snow. Trillion is such a, um, a strange sort of number because we have really no mental concept of that, you know, that we could, it's tangible anyways. I mean, we're standing next to a huge snowbank. How, much, how many cubic feet of snow do you think that is? I have no clue. I'll be, I have time. We can count. Um, I don't have time, though. <laughs> okay. But it was a lot of snow. It was a lot of snow, yeah. So let's move from the snowy street. It's actually not really snowy out there anymore. It's kind of like now starting to just turn into slush. But come back to the studio and see if there's anyone we can possibly think of in the 538 world who could maybe help provide a little more context to this number about the weather. And lo and behold, here he is, Harry Enton who's one of our political writers, but Harry, you are also a... A weather weenie, I believe, is what we called it at weather camp back at Penn State. I spent my entire Saturday in my bed watching the weather. To say I'm into the weather is to say that the Yankees are into winning. (laughs) Well, before we talk about this 6.6 trillion cubic feet of snow and some other weather stats from this large storm, 
What was it like for you this past weekend when we had one week out from the Iowa caucus, which is your job here at 538 is to be obsessed over that kind of forecasting, and then the second biggest snowstorm to ever hit New York, or at least in one day total? It was, to put it mildly, I, I would imagine it's like somebody who's addicted to crack and then you give them like 10 pounds of crack. I mean, <laughs> I've never done drugs, but that was the equivalent to me. I, I was flying high. I mean, all right, let's talk about this number. 6.6 trillion cubic feet of snow. Is that helpful in any way or how is that calculated? Helpful in some ways, I'm sure. I mean, it just tells you that there was a lot of snow that fell, right? A lot of snow over a wide area that fell and that's what that number is basically telling us. And this number, by the way, comes to us from Ryan Maui, who is a reputable uh, weather geek as well. And he uh, there's so there's like a 10 to 1 ratio he refers to right. in terms of snow to to liquid. So essentially for every inch of rain that you would get, you get about 10 inches of snow. That's not necessarily perfect. You know, if the uh, air is colder up in the upper atmosphere where snow forms, if you get the perfect type of dendrite formation for the snowflakes, you can in fact get 20 to 1, 30 to 1, 40 to 1, but usually 10 to 1 is the is the thing we go with. So there were some other kind of measurement uh, controversies. I don't know if you want to call them that. Uh, one of them was that in D.C. there was this big kind of screw up about how they measured the snow at National Airport. Right, right exactly. So, you know, I think when most people think of measuring snow, they think, oh, we're going to stick a ruler in the ground and we'll see how high the snow goes. That's not really how it works. That's more of what would be called snow depth at the end of a storm. You'd stick a ruler in. But oftentimes, snow depth underestimates how much snow has actually fallen. That's because there's compaction of snow as the snow kind of weights down upon itself. What you should be doing is using something called a snow board. And you essentially allow the snow to measure up for six hours. And then you wipe the board clean. And you add up together those six-hour increments. Because that way, over the course of the entire storm, it's not compacting, compacting, compacting. You might lose a couple inches because of just the weight of the snow going down. So they didn't do that in D.C. And there was they, all these like snow truthers out there saying this storm was way bigger than what it actually showed. Right. They, they apparently lost where the snowboard actually was. All of a sudden, they were getting you know all these inches per hour. And then it was heavy snow for like six hours. And then the amount went up by a very small amount. And it made like no sense what was going on. Yeah. And then all all of a sudden, when we found that they lost the snowboard, it made a lot of sense. Okay, Harry Enton, who obsesses about political forecasting and weather forecasting, thanks for joining us. And I'll say that, Harry, you are also one of the members of our new politics podcast. So listeners of this podcast should go listen to Harry in his official form. You can find it on the website. We will be talking every week on that show. So I'm looking forward to that. I look forward to And now, a look at the ongoing drinking water crisis in Flint, Michigan. 538's Annaberry Jester traveled there last week and reported on the crisis and has a piece up now that you have to read. In it, she traces the path of how this crisis arose and profiles some of the citizens who sounded the alarm. Anna is here to talk about it now. Uh, welcome back to the podcast, and thank you for doing this reporting. I really do think it is one of the best pieces on the Flint crisis I've read. Thanks for having me, Jody. So I think a lot of people know the basic story of what's happening in Flint and a little bit about how we got there. But I think it's been reported to some extent as a sort of government failure, a story about government failure, uh, if not corruption. How is it a data story? Right. So, I mean, I certainly there is a component of government failure here, but there was also a bit 
I don't want to say data is data manipulation because that implies some intent that I can't really speak to. But there, um, we have a federal law that regulates water specifically for lead and copper. It's called the lead and copper rule. And there's a, you know, a range of testing that's required to be done with that. And the way the state of Michigan, the protocol that they allowed for that testing was sort of like the bare minimum requirements. I think you do a good job in your piece of highlighting the fact that the laws probably need to change and be more rigorous. But even under the, let's say, low bar that the laws create right now, there there is a pretty heavy data trail about the quality of Flint's water. Right. And, you know, you can imagine the residents are like, OK, so there's this federal cutoff of 15 parts per billion. But they had a bunch of tests that came in above that. You know, if you have so many residents testing with such high lead levels, the residents really felt like, well, why didn't they tell us that? Why didn't they warn us so that we could either be flushing our systems, you know, just running the tap for a few minutes before using it or drinking bottled water, trying to minimize the exposure? So why didn't they tell them? <laughs> what they said over and over again was that they were meeting the federal requirements. And, you know, again, what the residents kept saying is, is their job to meet federal requirements or is it to keep us safe? Right. You ask this very pointed question. What's the job of government? Is it to make sure that the water clears a particular standard or is it to determine that the water is safe? And if you just look at the I mean, this is why to me, this is almost not a data story in a way is because like the evidence wasn't hidden inside a spreadsheet here. The evidence was like in a bottle that you could look at and say something is off here. And also, as you describe in the fact that people would start started drinking this water and within six months would have serious health issues. You don't need data to see that right in front of your nose. And that's one of the other things that I find really troubling is like, you know, say in a you know, in a different world, they actually hadn't found lead in the water, that for some reason that hadn't been a problem. There were a lot of other problems with this water that people were really concerned about. And, you know, it was unpalatable at best. And it, you know, and more likely than not causing a lot of other health concerns, just from the rust. And, you know, of course, there was an E. coli outbreak, and then these TTHMs, which are known cancer causing agents. What's TTHM? It's, um, it's a byproduct of when you put chlorine in water, um, to reduce the organic matter, in this case, the E. coli, uh, it's a it's a byproduct of that process. Right. So there there are a number of health issues with the water in Flint that were sort of cascading on each other, and then some of the attempts to fix some of those health issues caused health issues of their own. So it's not just a lead story. It's, as you said, an E. coli story, an overchlorination story. There's all sorts of things compounding on each other. And for residents, it's like, okay, so we're a city that's been ignored for a long time in a lot of realms. Like, you know, their education is not as good as their neighboring um, cities. There's all these compounding problems. And it just felt like another area where the government was ignoring problems that they were having, very real problems. The other element is that, you know, Flint is in tough tough, tough economic shape. And this whole switch to water was done um, because it was seen as a cost-saving measure. And so maybe that played into this moment as well, where, as you said, sounding the alarm and making changes, even though that is the right thing to do, and we can't say that enough, uh, it is an expensive thing. And Flint was in, you know, is in really tough shape. The the economic part of this is really complicated. So Flint pays some of the highest water rates in the state, and some people argue in the country. I mean, they, they really pay a lot for water. I visited a bunch of homes, and everybody showed me water and sewer bills that were, you know, $100 a month. This is That's a lot of money in a place where people are earning like $24,000 a year on average. It's really 
um, the, the rates are really high. So they're paying for their water. And the thing that's really, um, that I think has been missed a little bit is that, yes, this may have been a cost-saving effort, um, but the water system in Flint was paying for itself. It wasn't running a deficit. It wasn't draining no. the city budget. It was paying for itself with those user fees from residents. But that's where this all started, right? Was 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 it an appointee of the governor, not an elected official, came in and started to try and find ways to cut costs, and that's where they went to this substandard water collection system. But you're saying that that wasn't even a cost-saving measure? The When I talked to the former mayor, Dane Walling, he kind of said, you know, they started going into this pipeline, and it sort of but he feels like it may be spun out of control and that all of a sudden the water system was seen as a way to save money, even mm-hmm. though it, that wasn't it really didn't need to save money. This the, the water change in the pipeline was sort of a long term issue. But in the short term, the system was paying for itself. Let's talk about the data collection that actually goes into, you know, evaluating water and then we'll talk about some of the findings and then whether the findings got ignored or covered up. But what were some of the problems with the actual analysis of the water in Flint? So when it comes to collecting the water, there were several things they did. One, they were having people flush out the water in their um, homes the night before. So they'd have them turn on the tap and um, flush out the system. And that's not the way that we actually consume water. I mean, the goal of these tests is to mimic the way that you actually consume your water. And so overnight, your water sits for several hours while you sleep. And that, in during that time, it often accumulates accumulates lead from the pipes, either in your home or in their service pipes or in the city pipes. Um, so you want to get a, a reading where the water has been sitting for a long time because that's the, the, your highest chance of catching the lead in the water. You want to look for the highest risk situation. But if you flush it out the night before, and especially if you do that with like a powerful stream of water, you pull out any of those uh, pieces of lead, you clean out the system, you're, you're reducing the chances that you're going to find that lead in the water if it's there. But who was making that decision then to say, let's flush this, right? That was an active choice to recommend that people collecting samples do that, right? You know, every city does this every three years. It's just that when you switch your water, you have to do it every six months because that's when, you know, you change the water system. Of course, you're at higher risk of having problems. And for context, that's what happened here. Flint was in the process of kind of doing, I guess, a patch between one water system and then before another pipeline got got built that would bring water from one of the Great Lakes, they decided to pull water from the river. And it's in that basically year-long stretch where all of these problems arose. You also describe how um, water was being collected in a narrow-sized bottle. Why does that matter? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting. It's all these kind of seemingly innocuous details, but they're super important. So if you think of a soda bottle, it has like a really narrow neck. And if you try and fill that up, you turn on the water with a very slow stream so that you're not spraying water all over the place. But when you tr- go to fill up a glass of water, like first thing in the morning, maybe, you know, you can turn the tap on full blast. And that is more likely to have lead in it than a very slow stream, you know, gentle stream that's going through the pipes. Because a lot of what happens is that you're actually breaking off pieces of lead occasionally. And that's as much a risk as is sort of like small amounts in the water. Um, and so they were having people fill them with these very small necked bottles rather than a wide necked bottle. And there's a lot of research about that, that that also reduces the ability to detect lead. So there were some real problems with the way that this data was collected and moved up the chain. But nevertheless, 
even the flawed data, as we've been saying, showed real problems. So whose desk did that data land on and what did they do with it? Or right. not do with it. <laughs> I mean, so the there's a researcher who ultimately came in and found, you know, found that there was a problem with lead in the water. And he has been through this experience before in Washington, D.C. And so the first thing he did when he got involved was to use the Freedom of Information Act and dig up, you know, hundreds of pages of emails trying to understand who knew what when. It's still a little bit unclear, but it's clear that sort of by February or April of 2015, at least the Department of Environmental quality and probably the EPA at some point, or definitely the EPA at some point, knew that they were finding samples with very high lead contents, things that probably should have triggered some sort of at least curiosity to understand what was going on rather than saying, you know, we're meeting the regulatory requirements. And why did no one jump in at that point? It's such a good question. Um, you know, I can speculate on some of the things, you know, it is a big deal if this happens. You have to warn all these residents, you know, 100,000 people would have to change their daily lives in terms of how they're drinking water. So if there's not a risk, you know, you don't want to unnecessarily raise an alarm. I, I, I don't think that anyone would argue there didn't appear to be a risk. I think that they should have seen it. But I can't, you know, it's hard to say, why would you not warn residents? I, you know, the, in the emails, they say things like, well, they're switching the water again in 18 months. And so, you know, there was like concern that they would change the protocol only to have to change it again when they switched the water source in 2016. So there just seemed like a reluctance to be proactive. And I think we just have to say that it's probably the case that if this were happening in a different kind of community, in a community that had more political agency, in a community that wasn't mostly minorities, uh, there would likely be a different outcome here. One of the other ways in which data kind of works its way through your reporting in this story is obviously we talked about the, the data that, that showed how bad the water was. But it feels like both sides were kind of couching themselves in data. Governor Snyder recently released some, but not all of the emails that his office had exchanged about this crisis. And in there, there's references to the data in like scare quotes, right? Sort of sort of dismissing it. And so there's really like, you can have all the data in the world that makes an argument, but if there's just fundamental skepticism about it, then I mean, what does that say about the ability to make a case with science and data to a government entity? Right. And that those scare quotes were around data that um, Mona Hanna-Atisha, a pediatrician, had gathered looking at the elevated blood lead levels for kids in Flint. So the Department of Health and Human Services in Michigan had looked at that data and determined that it was just a seasonal change, which does happen. But there was, you know, a statistically significant increase in blood lead levels that they had missed. Ultimately, People came through and took the data seriously, and the city took that data very seriously. As soon as they heard that there might be a problem for children, they really did immediately kind of make a public health emergency declaration. You're saying the, the health data, the data from the pediatrician. Yeah. Which came, the, just to be clear, that came further down the line than the data about the quality of the water itself. And it's in that gap where all the problems arose. Right. So, the, yeah, the data about the quality of the water was, I mean, you could position that back to sort of end of 2014 or at very best June of 2015. The data about the blood elevated blood lead levels didn't come until uh, end of September. Talk a little bit about that timetable. I mean, when I first heard this story, 
uh, just as like a headline, I was I, in my head. I would have I would have sort of guessed that like, oh, this is years and years of bad water and it's accumulated effects. But it's really we're talking about like a spring and a summer. But within that time, these massive health impacts can take hold. They changed the water in April of 2014. In October of 2014, one of the General Motors plants in Flint moved back to the Detroit water because the water was corroding their parts. So, I mean, that tells you how quickly and how corrosive the water was. And then, yeah, and then the water testing, I mean, that became clear that there was sort of a problem in February, April of 2015. And you saw elevated blood lead levels within less than a year from when they first switched the water. Some of the doctors I talked to, you know, they feel really sad that they kind of missed this, but people were coming in and complaining about stomach pain, hair falling out, rashes, all sorts of these sort of like nebulous symptoms that you can't exactly pinpoint what was going on. A lot of people had the feeling that it was to do with the water, but you know, they were being told that the water was safe. You want to try and find a cause. And if you're being told that the water is safe, then you maybe would look elsewhere. And so Leanne Walters, who, you know, ends up being kind of at the center of this story, is a mother of four. She has twin sons. One of them had a compromised immune system. And he was really, he was having trouble gaining weight. um, And he was having a lot of health problems. And so she you know, she went and had her son tested and saw that his blood lead levels had risen in the time since the water had changed. Tell us a little bit more about Leanne Walters. She is kind of one of the, I guess, citizen, the citizen scientists of Flint who really were responsible for pushing this issue forward in many ways, right? Yeah. So, you know, in the end of 2014, she started going to city council meetings and then learning a little bit here and there. She'd take what she learned. She'd go home. She'd do research. She'd come to the next meeting even more well-prepared. And people just kept telling her and, you know, a bunch of other residents who were with her. There was a group of people who were attending all these public meetings who, that everything was fine. And so, but she, you know, she had her, she had the evidence with her children. There was something really wrong and it was really concerning to her. And so she just kept pushing. I mean, she went to city hall. She collected all the documents on all the water testing they were doing, learned all that you need to know about corrosion control and that kind of stuff. Um, and when the city and state wouldn't listen, she went to the EPA. And she got a you know really kind of miraculous person on the end of the phone who listened to her and believed her that there was probably a problem. And you described that she was not the only one. I mean, there was a group of concerned citizens who basically gave themselves, you know, like, master's degrees in you know water science on the side on nights and weekends because of this incredibly personal effect that they were feeling but you know should we feel any bit of like good about the fact that that they were empowered in this way or is it like no like they should never been in this position to begin with yeah, I think they'd all prefer that they didn't, yes. that the children in Flint weren't put at risk. But it is, it is really remarkable. They call themselves the water warriors. Um, and, you know, several of the scientists I talked to kind of remarked that they know a lot more than your average water municipal worker, which is really interesting. Um, there is kind of a, it's a little bit wonky, but there's a dynamic to this that's also very interesting, which is that the lead and copper rule, which is supposed to oversee uh, regulations on lead, it actually has written into it this component where residents are partly responsible for maintaining the safety of the water. I mean, the lead doesn't enter the water at the plants. It's entering the water by the time it gets to the home. And so many people see this as a flaw in the law because obviously 
your average citizen doesn't know that you're not necessarily protected from lead in your water, right? Um, the fact that that's sort of written into the law and yet they still didn't listen is really was really troubling for a lot of residents when they realized that. And the other problem with that, I didn't know about that clause in the law, but with something like lead, I mean, when you start to notice the symptoms, it's too late. And it's, you know, the sad thing about lead is that you may not have symptoms right away. It's not like you have some acute problem immediately. It's five years down the line, 10 years down the line, especially with children. It causes this population curve shift where it lowers the IQ of the population by a few points overall. It increases ADHD. There's some research that it um, increases violent tendency by decreasing impulse control. It really causes a lot of problems that are, again, it's like you're going to have parents down the road thinking, is this because I let my kids drink the water? That is really scary and upsetting for them. just a kind of question about the government's role in this, which is looking at it as a, as a whole and this entire process, do you feel like it was a fuck up or a cover up? That is, I've read hundreds of emails and it's really hard to say. I, without a doubt, there's a callousness in the emails that re- reflects a lack of curiosity, if you will, as to what was going wrong and why the residents were so concerned, rightfully concerned, you know? Um, I can't imagine that anybody would willfully poison children. So I can't say that, you know, it was a cover-up in that sense. That's so hard for me to believe, but certainly people were not doing their job. Again, as we described, you know, the incentives to go that extra step or not even extra step, just the like the humane step were not there because of the socioeconomic context and and all of those other factors. I mean, you know, Governor Snyder even said it himself that if this had happened in a white, rich white suburb, it would have happened differently. Flint has been long ignored despite what people say. It has not gotten the attention it deserves. And this is just another layer of trauma in the lives of the kids who live in Flint. So uh, as we wrap up, I want I want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the larger lessons, not that we need to justify this story by talking about larger lessons. I mean, this is like an outrage on its own terms and deserves attention. But like as you you know, as someone who who writes about health and writes about health policy, you know, are there steps, next steps that we can learn from this, things that we need to be aware of in in our relationship with science and regulation and health that resonate for other communities and other issues? Right. So I think there's a few lessons. One is that, you know, there's this whole kind of field of environmental justice. And when there's a community telling you that something's wrong, I really think we need to pay attention. And I know that sounds super obvious, but we don't. And sometimes it's not the most obvious explanation or, you know, you are sort of vaguely trying to keep tabs on what's happening and you don't see that there's a problem. But if people are telling you that there's a real problem in their community, I really think it's that we need to do a better job of listening to them. The other thing is that, you know, you've got this lead and copper rule, um, Again, I I think most people in the U.S. would assume that we regulate water to keep it safe, and we do, but it's not quite to the degree to which some people might imagine, right? 10% of homes can have elevated lead readings. Those 10% really need to know that, right? 
the EPA right now is looking to reevaluate the lead and copper rule, and there are some concerns that the revisions could make it even weaker. Uh, they're expected to release that to the public in 2017 for comment. And I, you know, I think people should pay attention. There are consumers and residents involved with that who have real concerns about the way that law is being revised. And I, we should try not to forget about what happened in Flint when that revision comes up. And what's next for Flint? What's the EPA going to do? Do you have any sense that there's any faith left in government for the residents of Flint? Yeah, so the EPA has said it's taking over power, you know, oversight for water in Flint from the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality. The there's a bunch of programs that are being put together by paid for by some foundations and researchers, including the doctor who helped find the elevated blood lead levels that they hope can could like full on mitigate the effects of the lead exposure. And that's really promising. I mean, if we were really to put the resources into it, there are ways that you can mitigate that exposure. But you know, the residents are, there's nothing to do right now to fix that damage. I mean, they can, they can try, but it's really going to take some time. It's really hard to explain how deeply disturbing that is to realize that the people who are supposed to protect you are not, are not doing that. Um, well, on that note, we'll end. And um, but thank you for you know adding to the important reporting around this. And I'm glad we were able to sort of talk about this and, and advance the story in our own way. But Anna Barry Jester, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jody. You can read Anna Barry Jester's full piece on Five Thirty Eight right now. I really encourage you to do so. What's the Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Our new intern is Jonathan Yales. Jonathan, welcome. Joel Warner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me at podcasts at 538.com about this episode or any ideas you have for future shows. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, host of the Song Exploder podcast. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating and a review. It really does help others discover the show. And again, go check out the new 538 Elections podcast. I'm over there along with Nate Silver, Claire Malone, Harry Enton, and more. Thanks for listening. See you soon.